For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Borussia Dortmund have won the European Cup Winners' Cup. You can feel the passion, the emotion. And Dortmund against all the odds, our European champions. Hello everyone, welcome back to Believe in Borussia, your Borussia Dortmund podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. My name is Tilo, and I'm happy to have you back with us for episode number six. If you haven't done so, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on where else are we? Oh, of course, Apple Podcasts, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you listen to podcasts, we are there. We have another great show for you today. We will start with a quick match day recap. Look ahead to the German Cup semi-final coming up this weekend. A big match. I'll share my views on the whole European Super League drama. And I'm going to talk about a black and yellow soccer god. It was another great weekend for Borussia Dortmund. Succeeding in a must-win game over Wolfsburg. Haaland scored a brace. Of course... Because when he scores away, he makes it a double, yeah? And with Frankfurt losing, we're now just a point behind the Eagles and two points behind the Wolves. That is a lot better than 11 or 7 points respectively as it was a couple of weeks ago. Nevertheless, we still have three tough games ahead. Leipzig, Mainz and Leverkusen. Wolfsburg will face Berlin, also Leipzig and Mainz. And Frankfurt have arguably the easiest route with Mainz, relegated Schalke and Freiburg. So we all got Mainz, who just beat Bayern and are in great form, but they might start to let off a little bit once they are safe. So hopefully they give Frankfurt a good fight because it's also a derby and take it a little easier against us. Either way, it's a tight race and winning out might not even be enough to climb back into the top four, but it will definitely make it the most likely. So we just need to win all the games. Easier said than done. But before all of those games, there is another big game coming up this weekend and it's the cup semi-final with a cup final berth on the line and the chance to lift silverware for the first time in four years. Now for most of my fan life, Borussia Dortmund sucked in the domestic cup. They really did. Even in the 90s, when they were an absolute top team in Germany and in Europe, they couldn't get a leg up in the competition. Cup season after cup season ended in early disappointment. Until that magical night of 2012 when Dortmund demolished Bayern to secure the first domestic duel in the club's history. Neuer can't hold on to it! 5-2! And all of a sudden, the guys were like cup specialists. They returned to the final four times in the next five years. To put that in perspective, it took Dortmund 112 years 
to reach its first four domestic cup finals. And then all of a sudden it's four and five. Unfortunately, we only won once and that was under Thomas Tuchel in 2017. And that is also the last time that we won a title while well, a title up matters. And the good news is we are facing second division Kiel, who also good news, kicked out Bayern on their way to the semis. The other semi-final between Bremen and Leipzig will take place on Friday. And Leipzig has to be the overwhelming favorite. Now I prefer to play Bremen because we have some unfinished cup business with them. And I also don't mind keeping Leipzig as far away from silverware as possible. But first, we gotta take care of business at home. Holstein Kiel, who had to quarantine due to a corona outbreak, just came back in form, convincingly beating Osnabrück on the weekend 3-1. And they have very good chances for promotion, sitting 5 points behind 2nd placed 3rd, but they have 3 games in hand. However, they are playing also one game this Tuesday, so that might be a little bit of an advantage for Borussia Dortmund. In either case, Dortmund needs to beat Kiel. I know anything can happen in one game, that's why we love the sport. And Holstein kicked out Bayern. But that was during the grueling January, in a snow-soaked pitch in icy rain. The BVB pitch is in pristine condition and the team will be well rested. There's really not a whole lot that I can fathom being an advantage for Kiel. So I would hope, ideally, we will put the fixture to bed early because Leipzig is waiting the week after. But honestly, most importantly is get to the final. And ideally do so without any injuries. It will be the last 12.30 game of the season, 9.30 Pacific. It will be a 2.30 kickoff, 11.30 Pacific. So for all North American-based Dortmund fans, the last opportunity this season to enjoy Dortmund at a more pleasant hour. The other good news for fans around the country this week was probably the arrival of the first batch of Null Neon shirts and boy are they good looking. If you ordered the second round, trust me, it's worth the wait. From the box to the shirt to the sticker, it's a true work of art. I got a little worried about the size because while I know it's a far cry from the baggy cuts of the 90s, I only realized later it's a slim fit pro and then I heard fans saying it's too tight. But I can say for myself, I got an L and even though it is a quite sportive cut, I don't look like the marshmallow man. So what I really loved about the shirts was the fact that you could choose a number from one of the old timers and that they even made the print of the number in that 90s old school design. And there were so many to choose from. Zorc, Ricken, Sammer, Müller, and even cult players like Kutowski or Knut Reinhardt who may have not been the best footballers in the world, but surely were one of the most dedicated, hardest working ones. And one of the players that was equally cult and world-class was the Koksa Jürgen Kohler. He was the Iron Man among tough defenders. And while that kind of blue-color style always bodes well in Dortmund, it was one moment on the 23rd of April in 1997, this month 24 years ago, that elevated Jürgen Kohler from a great player to BVB legend and Jürgen Kohler Fußball Gott. Oh, yeah. Number 15, Jürgen! Oh, yeah. Jürgen! Oh, yeah. 
But let's back up a little. After winning back-to-back -back German titles in 1995, Borussia Dortmund had made a deep run into the Champions League in 1997. And now they were facing Manchester United in the semi-finals. It was the first time that Dortmund had actually reached the semi since 1964. And for United too, it was the first time since 1969. The two teams had also faced each other once before in the competition in 1956 in the second edition of the European Cup. So both teams had a lot riding on this. Dortmund traveled to England with a slim advantage. Despite having many injuries, Borussia was able to wrestle away one home victory from United in the first leg on a magical shot from René Trechok. In his own words, Who the fuck is René Trechok? Trechok was mostly a role player, but he had a knack for coming through in the clutch and scored a couple of important goals for Borussia Dortmund. Likely none more important or celebrated than this one against United. For the return leg, Borussia Dortmund was still missing key players. None more important than the reigning Ballon d'Or winner and head of its defense, sweeper Matthias Sammer. United, on the other hand, boasted a loaded roster. They had For starters, Captain Eric Cantona, then the class of 92, the Beckhams, Skoll, the Neville brothers, Andy Cole, they were loaded. And many believe United would turn the tie around at the Old Trafford. Against the precedence of German successes over England on the international stage, United knew that they had to make the most of every chance that came their way against a Dortmund side protecting a one-goal lead. If only. Alas, they didn't reckon with Borussia Dortmund, who were locked in. And they capitalized on United's very first mistake. Losing the ball on a throw-in close to United's own baseline, Müller picked it up, found a young Rick in the top of the box, who slotted the ball home past Schmeichel for the crucial 1-0 lead after only 8 minutes. It's gone in! Now United would need 3 goals to advance. Knowing that, Ferguson switched his formation around and United started laying siege in Dortmund's half. Attack after attack rolled towards Borussia Dortmund goalie Stefan Klos. And the United goal was palpable. None more so than when Andy Cole whipped a low cross from the right side of the six-yard box into the left field and Borussia looked beaten. But Andy Cole, there's his cross! BVB goalie Klos, trying to get a hand on the low ball, goes to the ground and deflects it just enough to route the ball into the back of the unrushing Kola, who has Cantona trailing him. Kola, aware of the imminent danger, turns on the dime and tries to poke the ball away but falling on his back. So Cantona, maybe four yards away from the empty net, with close laying on the far side and Kola laying to his left, has the goal at his mercy. In today's expected goal charts, this would be like a 99.9. <laughs> it would be probably 110 point. I don't know. It was everybody thought he would score. Even if you've never seen a game before, you thought this would be a goal. But the soccer gods were with Borussia that night. And they were disguised as Jürgen Kohler. Laying on his back to Cantona's left, he seemed out of the play. But he never lost sight of the action and got his left leg up just enough to block Cantona's shot. An unbelievable scene. Anyone that saw this match remembers that scene. That missed shot, that chance came to define this game. 
Again, it was as clear a goal chance as you will ever see. And on the giving end, it was none other than Eric Cantona. But on the receiving end, there was the soccer god. And that tireless worker with the distinct stash would go on to make a few more miraculous saves and lead a devoted defense to the promised land, the 1997 Champions League final in Munich. Now, what makes the spirited performance and that absolute dedication even more remarkable is the fact that he almost didn't even play. Kola didn't travel with the team. Officially, he was out with a stomach virus. But really, Jürgen Kohler had stayed home to be with his wife because they had just suffered a miscarriage. Only Dortmund coach Hitzfeld was a no and he was willing to cover for the Kokser. But Kohler was determined to play. And despite that personal tragedy, he packed his bags and caught up with the team on match day in Manchester. The rest is history. There's the final whistle and Dortmund against all the odds. European champions. So last but not least, I wanted to talk about the European Super League and all the drama. As many of you, I followed the conversation very closely, but I have to say I found it very black and white and populist on both sides. So I wanted to add a few observations on my end to maybe add a little bit of gray into the black and white. So first of all, as an American-based show, I took a bit of offense to that whole American boogeyman narrative that was strummed up by the media and some pundits. If I look at the structure, who got the most money, who needed it the most desperately, and who is still ride or die for it at this very moment, to me, this whole thing starts with Real Madrid and Florentino Perez. It's obvious from the start, and this is the other thing, even if you buy his argument, if your goal as Real Madrid is to deliver the Super League, um, you know, whatever you may think of it, they've gone about it completely the wrong way. And, you know, that is on the people who are, re who are leading this. Florentino Perez, Andrea Agnelli, uh, the Glazers, and, uh, and, and, and the people at Liverpool. It starts with Perez, who needed another big name to lure in the rest of the teams. So I'm not sure if it's United and the Glazers here or if it's Juventus and Agnelli, but I'm pretty certain this whole thing started in Europe and not in the US. And here's why. Real Madrid are around a billion dollars in debt, at least that's what I've read. They're building a new stadium, they're battling with Corona, so they have big cash flow problems and they have mismanaged their team, spending big bucks on players that just don't perform, Jovic, Hazard, and so on and so forth. So they need money, and they need money fast to continue to manage the club in the same dysfunctional way they've mismanaged it for the last couple of years. So they go out and they negotiate the biggest slice of the pie for themselves. Around, I think, 7.2% of the whole thing, which was over $300 million as payments from JP Morgan and Chase, plus a $30 million bonus for Real Madrid and Barcelona that would have ensured that they would have been the absolute top teams in terms of revenue making in that new European Super League. So if I look at the monetary requirements and the setup, then it seems to me it starts there. So Perez knows he needs a few big names, clubs and backers, to get enough teams in. He can bank on the English teams with the American owners because he knows that these guys are in it for the money. So all he has to do is assure them 
that he has a way to make even more money than they're doing now in the Premier League and Champions League. And then the rest really just comes down to peer pressure. Once you have the big English teams, Barcelona, Real and Juve, for example, the rest will probably just get FOMO. And it worked. It worked for Tottenham. It worked for Arsenal. It worked for Chelsea. They were just afraid to get left in the dust. So even with a small turnaround window of maybe 24, I think, or 48 hours or something like that, they were willing to sign on a dotted line. And here it already goes wrong because, as we all know, there were some teams that didn't let the fear of missing out overwhelm them and actually took a stance. And those teams were Borussia Dortmund, Bayern Munich and PSG. Now these teams have all very different interest in doing so. But what matters for now is that the assumption that everybody will just fall in line once the biggest bullies put down the law was already shattered right there. So to sum it up, only five of the 12 teams that I know of are owned by American investors. That's Milan, Arsenal, Tottenham, Liverpool, and Manchester United. Apparently, the three most vocal stakeholders were Perez, Agnelli from Juve, and the Glazers in United. That's one in three. That's not the majority. That's a far cry from the narrative of the Americans pushing corporate greed onto innocent European clubs. Another notion that I heard getting tossed around was that 50 plus 1 is the answer, the German model. Um, apart from already being disbalanced in Germany itself by clubs in Hoffenheim, Wolfsburg and Leipzig, member-owned clubs aren't just a miracle cure. If it was so, then Barca and Real, who are both membership-owned, would be out. But their socios, they don't seem to be interested in actually yielding that power. That comes with the status of having a vote on the club president. It's a very different culture. German fans are much more organized and proactive. And their perception of their own role within the club as actors is very different. They're much more opinionated and more coordinated in throwing their weight behind things like fair ticket pricing, standing areas, pyrotechnics. So not only are there more active participants, they also have different topics that they value. Quite frankly, I wouldn't even be surprised if a majority of the Madrid socios are in favor of the European Super League. That restrictive setup of Real's membership itself creates that sort of elitism and exclusivity that to me resembles the mindset of the Super League. So be careful with statements like 50 plus 1 is the solution or membership-owned clubs. I would personally prefer if we would move more into the directions and active fans would get more involved with their clubs again. But at the same time, membership can just be as detrimental or dysfunctional as any other form of management for a club. And talking about fans, one of the popular stories going around was that fans saved the game. Mm, what a nice story. What a great circle jerk. Yeah, um, it's a really nice narrative. And quite frankly, the backlash was real. But to think that a few thousand, at best, maybe it was just a few hundreds actually, fans outside two stadiums and some epic Twitter rants broke the camel's back, I find highly questionable and borderline naive. At least that's not the fans that I'm thinking of that saved the day. The beautiful thing about soccer is that it's everywhere and its fans are everywhere. They work in every aspect of public life. For example, in the media. So it was possible to take that outcry from fans, for example, across the stadium, 
and turn it into a huge media story that drew the lines clearly and very early and increased the pressure on all actors in the field, including, and that's something I think they underestimated, political pressure. Public figures from Prince William to Prime Minister Boris Johnson to the European Commission, which is a rather unusual alliance usually, were rejecting the plans unisono. To me, it looked like the preparation from the European Super League, the focus was likely on things like European antitrust laws and such. But they seemingly did not factor in the backlash on the domestic level. Just like Paris stated, I think he simply assumed life would go on in domestic leagues because they'd continue to play in that league, that's what they wanted, but then have their closed European ball midweek. So their strategy seemed mostly targeted at UEFA and FIFA, who had most to lose from that setup where they would play in the domestic leagues, and but then would run an event in competition to the UEFA. One example of that is the very tone-deaf press release that came out the Monday after about the European Super League having filed injunctions across several courts. That wasn't aimed at the public. That wasn't designed to appease fans or other clubs. It was to push back UEFA and show them whatever sanctions you can come up with, we can probably break them in court. But UEFA was probably the smallest problem at that point for the European Super League. And speaking of UEFA, how they tried to portray themselves all of a sudden as the fans' advocate, that was absolutely comical. I don't think anyone really bought it. But I have to say, the UEFA, to me, is the natural ally of the small teams and all the other FAs because that is their power base. So when the big teams pressure the UEFA for more money, then UEFA can't just take it from its base, the small clubs and the small FAs. If Severin and co. want to continue and go on in their positions, then they need those votes so they can't touch that money. So what they do in response is things like blowing up the Euros, introducing the Europa Conference League, to let more clubs and more associations participate. And that alone makes them the natural enemy of any elitist closed system plan where the one percenters of soccer try to monopolize the TV money and revenue from sponsorships and decide themselves the fate of the rest of the soccer pyramid. 12 to 15 clubs ruling all of European soccer sounds even worse to me than the UEFA monopoly. Because as it stands, the body of the UEFA at least represents the whole European soccer pyramid and not just the very rich ones. So if the big clubs want more money, and that's one of the reasons why the Champions League reforms were on the way, the UEFA will always look to add more games because it won't take away the money from the small associations and clubs because it will lose votes. And it opens up the competition, which is always the goal for UEFA and FIFA. They always want more people involved. That's their natural instinct. They want to get as many people, clubs, players, whatever, into soccer as they can. And neatly adding more games and upping revenue in general still allows them to skew the ratio towards the richest teams while increasing the total revenue for everyone, even the smaller actors. So basically the argument for the smaller teams goes like, hey, we get you more money than you have before. And probably most of them will just take it because who doesn't want more money? And that's exactly what that Champions League reform looks like to me. And if Ilkay Gundogan or Jurgen Klopp complain about too many games and put the blame solely on the UEFA, 
they might want to stop by their boardrooms first and ask them to stop pushing for more revenue or, I don't know, maybe reduce their wages, spend less on players. Because that is the other side of the medallion. And that's why guys like Perez and Agnelli and everyone else are pushing for more revenue so they can keep up with their business model, which is outspend everyone left and right with enormous player wages and outlandish transfer fees. At the end of the day, every club just does what is in their very best interest. And that includes Borussia Dortmund. But luckily, our club and our leadership's best interest apparently aligns the most with the common fan around the world from all the top teams in European soccer. If Watzke doesn't come out and condemn it, if Bayern, Borussia Dortmund, PSG do not object to this project and do the same as their English counterparts, which is just sign on the dotted line and see what happens, and amidst the promise of more cash, this might have actually gone through. I think it was super crucial to have big clubs reject the project because it tore down the veil of inevitability from the other clubs, especially the English teams that acted like, hey, we didn't have a choice. They would have left us behind. So what? If you mismanaged your team over years, over decade, and it goes belly up, so what? If you're indeed a big club, there will be likely enough support out there to find a way to survive and stabilize the club and then come back, as teams have done before, based on good work and meritocracy. And if not, well, soccer might be poor for it in the short run, but it's not the death knell for a sport. Unlike this monopoly competition that was designed and run by people who are obviously out of touch with normal fans and don't know how to share. You might be a big revenue generator now, but that doesn't make you a big club. And even if you're both a big club and a big revenue generator like Real Madrid, you still rely and always have relied on all the other teams to crank up the competition and generate the value. Because the value doesn't come only from Real Madrid, Manchester United and Juventus Turin. It comes from all the teams. No other sports has so many players competing with each other trying to be the best. That's where the value comes from. That's why so many people watch it, because they relate to it. So this value isn't created by 12 to 15 teams. They're merely the ones that want to harvest the fruit of the labor that was invested by hundreds of clubs and hundreds of thousands of players over a hundred years to build this into the most popular sport on the planet, bar none. Thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcast fix. Let us know what you think in the comments, Twitter, Instagram, you can find us there. And until next week, a black and yellow shout out across America. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. 
Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.